This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Monday, August 5th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. On ABC's This Week, the mayor of Dayton, Nan Whaley, was on the show, and Jonathan Carl introduced her this way. Mayor Whaley, I'm so sorry to be talking to you under these circumstances. On Fox News, Chris Wallace had on the mayor of El Paso. Wallace said this. Mayor, first of all, it's we're so sorry to be talking to you under these circumstances. Similar apology was extended by CNN's Anderson Cooper a while ago when he interviewed the staff writers of the Annapolis Capital Gazette. I, I, again, I'm I'm sorry it's under these circumstances, but I appreciate the strength of, of you both talking. Thank you. Meet the press head-on, an official from the ADL after the Tree of Life synagogue shooting. Mr. Greenblatt, welcome to Meet the Press. Uh, I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Well, what other time were you really going to have them on? It's a politeness, but it's also an admission that the best we can do is be reactive, apologetically reactive at that. The real get would be the state legislator who failed to enact a bill, or the lobbyist who convinced the state legislator never to bring it up in the first place, or the gun owner who doesn't think that his or her prized hobby, including firing away AR-15s, in any way correlates to the use of those very weapons to kill people. It's hard to apologize for the interviews never done, the storylines never pursued, about the numerous unseen forces that are conspiring societally to freeze us into this state of impotence, incompetent impotence, over this issue of gun violence. There are many ways to take this argument, to take the uh, shootings of Dayton and El Paso, uh, and I will on this show probably in future days also, but right now I just want to take it in this one direction, which is to note about an emerging fact or set of facts about the Dayton shooter. So it seems that the Dayton shooter may not have been motivated by the exact same polls as the El Paso shooter was. On the 8chan message board, they praise those who murder to advance white supremacy as saints. They speak of St. Patrick, that's the El Paso shooter, and they talk about trying to outdo St. Brenton. Uh, He was the New Zealand shooter. This, by the way, is the most religious framing of a supposedly non-religious act you can possibly fathom. But the point is the Dayton shooter is being derided while the El Paso shooter is being praised. Now, in Republican circles, the El Paso shooter's motives are being dismissed as having nothing to do with the man in the White House, whereas the Dayton shooter's motives are being held up as proof of that very theory. See, it's not all our presidents radicalizing the citizenry into a death cult. A, it's inconsistent to say, how dare you listen to that guy's motivation, but this guy's motivation really bears out my point. But B, one mass slaughter could be motivated by White supremacy ideology doesn't really have any bearing if the next mass slaughter has the same or a different ideology or any ideology at all. Look, in the week after 9-11, 2001, there were 14 killings thought of and investigated as murders in New York City. None were motivated by terrorism. Does that mean a terrorist attack didn't happen? Of course it happened. Does whatever the motives of the Dayton shooter were, does that deny the hatred that killed now it's up to 22 mostly Latino shoppers in a Walmart in El Paso? No, it doesn't. Blame can't be deflected by a craftily wielded fact. 
We all know that those killed in El Paso were gunned down by a hate-filled man with a gun that he shouldn't have had. That's the same as Dayton, even if the exact strain of hate was slightly different. On the show today, I spiel about these two tragedies and assess some of the so-called debate points. But first, a conversation with an Amherst professor who argues there is a lot that anti-gun culture can learn from those who love firearms. Well, that's what he argues. I argue back. Writing today in Politico, two Amherst professors had an article titled, What Both Sides Don't Get About American Gun Culture, subhead, Amid the horrors of a mass shooting, it's easy to forget that guns are social glue and gun control efforts that don't account for that will fail. Let me read from some of this article. Guns themselves are woven into people's lives in ways that go far beyond a tool. This suggests that the path to gun law reform won't be as simple as liberals might hope or conservatives might fear. Culturally, guns aren't just a reaction to anxieties in a way gun control advocates rarely consider, but gun owners might find obvious. They're a meaningful social asset for their owners. In a fragmented society, guns connect people at a time when making connections is ever more difficult. Any real gun law reform is going to need to take this community and value system into account. Liberals need gun owners as allies. Well, joining me is one of the authors of that article. Austin Sarrett is associate provost and William Nelson Cromwell professor of jurisprudence and political science at Amherst College. He's an editor of the new The Lives of Guns. Hello, Professor Sarrett. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. So you say right there in the introduction to the book that you're pretty much, you and your co-editors, and I think the contributors are pretty much done with the current conversation about guns and gun control in America. Anything over the last two days that you've seen or heard changed your assessment? No, I think what we've seen over the last two days is pretty much reiterated a very familiar conversation. Uh, The first reaction to the horrible tragedies is for politicians of both parties to extend their sorrow and convey their thoughts and prayers. And then the next wave uh, is a partisan division with Democrats chastising Republicans for failing to pass more gun control. And the Republicans' response is the problem isn't guns, the problem is mental illness. So the impasse, which has really prevented progress in thinking reasonably about guns in the United States, I think there's no sign that we're out of it. Does a change, if what we want or what one would deem best for America, a change in this policy, does it hinge on winning the conversation, recasting the conversation? Does it depend on the conversation at all? I think it does depend on the conversation. And and I think progress in thinking about guns and gun regulation can be made. But I think that the way to make it is that the millions of gun owners who endorse various forms of reasonable gun regulation uh, need to be moved from verbal support to activism. After all, only about one out of five gun owners in the United States are affiliated with the NRA. That's still a lot of people, but 
but that means four out of five are not. And I believe that if gun owners can be enlisted and become visible and vocal on behalf of gun regulation, that that visibility and their raised voices may help to counteract some of the power of the of the NRA. Yeah, I think you're right. How would you go about making that happen? Well, I think that there has to be an outreach to gun owners from people who are advocates of gun regulation. I think right now gun owners believe that gun regulation may be the the kind of camel's nose under the tent to gun confiscation. And I think that until people who are in favor of regulation make clear that they don't want to confiscate guns, that this impasse will continue. That would be a reasonable thing to say, well, well, how are they going to make it clear that they don't want to confiscate guns? And I must say that's a little bit above my pay grade. Mm-hmm. I do think that Democratic politicians for, for all too long have been unclear about their view about guns. Some, uh, like President Obama, several years ago, criticizing gun owners for clinging to their guns and their Bibles as an excuse for taking out their frustrations on, on others, that drives a pretty deep wedge between gun owners and people who are in favor of reasonable gun regulation. Right. So he said that at a fundraiser, and I think it was uh, taped, and it was meant to be off the record, which is, I'm not pointing this out to say, oh, it was unfair that it was unearthed. My point is he said this maybe once in a moment where he didn't think he was publicly communicating, perhaps naive, he should have, but he probably said a hundred times, well, we're not here to grab your guns, and he never proposed uh, reversals of the Second Amendment. So I guess the question is, what amount of uh, conversation, what amount of uh, communication can be done if it's also easily undone by pointing at, you know, one stray comment? Why is it that gun owners would believe that and not believe the actual pieces of legislation passed after Sandy Hook or everything else he and members of his administration have said? This is a, a broader question about the nature and impasse of contemporary American politics. Uh, You can cite the Democrats' response to that uh, comment that Mitt Romney made when he was running for president. Again, he didn't think it was going to be on the the record. Mm -hmm. So all all you've done is to suggest, uh, I think quite rightly, that politics in the United States is deeply polarized and uh, poisoned by wellsprings of suspicion. So I don't know that uh, there's an easy fix to the problem. I don't know that Democrats reiterating over and over again that we're not out to get your guns um, is going to do the trick. But short of this effort that I'm advocating to building a bridge from people who are in favor of gun regulation to people who are gun owners who are themselves also in favor of gun regulation, 48% of gun owners favor a ban on assault weapons, and 44% favor a ban on high-capacity magazines. So there's a wellspring of potential agreement, um, and that's, that's what I'm 
trying to point to. Why would you look at those statistics and say, ah, therefore, it's an opportunity as opposed to draw the conclusion, therefore, something else is going on. If you have the gun owners, almost half of them agreeing with uh, the high capacity magazine argument, and then you have most, the vast majority of non-gun owners agreeing with it. So this means two thirds of America want something like high capacity magazines banned, and it doesn't happen. How's it about conversation? The conversation's been won, and uh, the laws aren't being changed. No, I don't think it's. I don't think you can reach that conclusion quite that quickly. We're at a time at which polarization in the country is so deep, and suspicion so deep that there are no easy fixes to this problem. So I'm offering um, uh, maybe a slightly different way to think about the problem. The way in which the problem has been thought about before, it's as if the NRA represents all gun owners. And I'm suggesting there's an opportunity here to build some alliances which have yet to be built. What about, you've probably heard Democrats, I know I have, John Kerry went out and did a weekend of shooting saying, this is what I do, I, I enjoy sports shooting, and Pete Buttigieg and Jason Kander and some of the uh, veterans talk about weapons of war and the weapons they've handled, and you have Governor Steve Bullock of Montana and others saying, you know, I'm a weekend shooter, I was raised in a hunting culture. It's not uncommon for Democrats to talk about it. Is that good enough, just raising those voices, or something else need to be done? Well, those voices... Uh, so far are, are not what I would say the, the central representatives of the Democratic Party. I think when many gun owners think Democrat, they think Hillary Clinton, they think Nancy Pelosi, they think Chuck Schumer. So the, the more that Democrats can reach out to gun owners, I think the better off we're going to be. But again, I keep saying this, I think there's a long way to go in that conversation and that the conversation itself is not going to produce a magic solution. I think we all agree we've got to do something. In 2019, we've had so far 251 shootings in which four or more people have been shot. Um, last year, we had 340 mass shootings. The year before, roughly the same amount. So the, the problem is there. Uh, I, I'm suggesting that by rethinking the oppositions, we may be offered the beginnings, but just the beginnings of a new strategy to reach some uh, reasonable gun regulations. Austin Sarrett is a professor at Amherst College. He's one of the co-editors of the new book, The Lives of Guns, and is a co-author of the story in Politico, What Both Sides Don't Get About American Gun Culture. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. And now the spiel. It seems to me there are four categories of things we're debating. One is just bullshit, just lies. The good guys with guns rhetoric, uh, Dems want to ban, the Second Amendment piffle. Then there are the things that may be true. Third is the things that could very well be true. And the last one, most importantly, we are debating things that are undoubtedly true. The may be true, 
I would put into this category some of the right wing explanations, some of the some of the better right wing explanations, the ones I can't immediately discount or disprove things like, you know, there may very well be something going on with mentally unsound young men in America that's happening to a degree that's not happening elsewhere in the developed world. 20 years ago, things like this didn't happen. I don't know that America's mental health has changed, but it may have. That's something to look into that plus the combination of social media. That may be true. The category of very well could be true is where we put the explanation or much of the blame on the president's doorstep. He benefits from simmering notions of white supremacy. His rhetoric exactly echoes some of the most virulent versions of that. Yes, others have been inspired to do harm, taking their inspiration from liberal forces. And I generally do not like crediting the motivation of a person so unwell that they would do this in the first place. But there is still something to be said about the deep, deep irresponsibility of presidential rhetoric and the fact that so many shared talking points show up in the manifestos of mass murderers. But the maybes and the could be's very starkly intersect with the undoubtedly true. And that's guns. All the guns. So many guns. The deadliest kind of guns. Let's take how a maybe true thing plus this undoubtedly true thing adds up to slaughter. So maybe we do have some sort of mental health problem that when added to guns is an accelerant. I, by the way, hate to denigrate people with mental health uh, as a shorthand to say, well, we need to talk about mental health. Mental health is a broad range of things. And it's Mostly not about killing people. We're talking about a specific form of mental health issue that allows the person suffering from it to meticulously plan out a killing, to post a manifesto moments beforehand so that he doesn't get flagged, and then to surrender because he doesn't want to die. In other words, far, far outside the legal definition of criminal insanity. This is a mental health of aggrievement, vengeance, self-justification, hating an out-group, wanting to impress your little 8chan in-group. So even people with that specific form of mental health problem, you know, they could buy acid. They could buy a knife. And if they did that, they could burn or stab a few people, a couple of people. And we would be upset, but we wouldn't be talking about it today outside of the cities where two or three people got acid splashed in their faces or four people in the nightclub district of Dayton were stabbed, let's say. But when the tool that that very deranged person reaches for doesn't disfigure at a splash or slice at a thrust when it expels rounds at a rate of at least 41 in 30 seconds in Dayton, then it's an entirely different category. By the way, that is how many shell casings they found. So it could have been, it's at least 41. And maybe you heard initial reports saying he did all of his shooting inside a minute. Yes, also inside of 30 seconds. So at least 41 shots within 30 seconds. And those are only the rounds recovered. So that's the undoubtedly true, these guns combining with someone with mental health. Let's, let's talk about the president. Even the stupid and irresponsible words of the president, which is, by the way, a moderate way of describing these words. We could be less moderate and say incendiary. 
So no matter how you look at the president's speech, did it prompt, did it provoke, did it incite, did it inspire, no matter where you are in your assessment, it is undoubtedly clear to see the most generous terms that a madman who was maybe lightly inspired by Donald Trump or wasn't inspired at all with a semi-automatic rifle or a similar weapon and rounds and rounds and rounds can easily slaughter so many of his fellow citizens. And that is what sends us into a state of shock and anger and mourning. And the same person with the same intent and the same motivations without those extremely powerful guns that fire a ridiculous number of rounds would not have killed all those people and would not be sending us into this state of shock, anger, and mourning. I found it telling that Mick Mulvaney, the White House chief of staff, beat back Chuck Todd's suggestion that the president in any way inspired the slaughter. So I'll ask this question. Uh, Was Bernie Sanders responsible for for when my friends got shot playing baseball? I don't think that he was. Was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez responsible when someone drove up to a DHS facility with a homemade bomb and an AR-15 and tried to blow the place up, calling it a concentration camp, the same rhetoric that she used? Was she responsible? I don't think that she was. Now, the two incidents that the chief of staff cited, quite notably, did not kill anyone. So he's comparing this mass slaughter with dead people to a a terrible event with which gravely wounded a congressman, but no one died. And that's important. And one of the reasons why no one died is the kind of weapons that were being used. And then the other incident he was talking about, this is... uh, the AOC supposedly inspired incident. This was where a 69-year-old man who shared a nexus of complaint with Representative Ocasio-Cortez, a nexus of complaint about DHS holding facilities and perhaps also agreement with the word concentration camp. This 69-year-old man threw some Molotov cocktails at trucks around the facility and then got himself shot and killed seems to be in quite a different category than the slaughters in Dayton and El Paso that we're talking about. But more to my point, it seems that even the the Howard Zinn reading ex-hippie who set fire to some trucks, whose death toll was one himself, it seems even if he was inspired by a word uttered by a member of Congress, the fact that he did no damage with his incendiary homemade devices illustrates what's really the point here, that it is the deadly tools for killing people that bear the blame, that bear our concern, that are causing us to experience this mass national wave of mourning and doubt and anger. If we banned the AR-15 and similar weapons, we would still have murders. Statistically speaking, we'd have as many murders as we do now. We wouldn't notice a dip in the overall number of murders, about 15,000 or so a year. But most of these mass slaughters, these ones that we're fixated on, that we can't turn away from because they are so horrific and that in a way speak well of us because we care about our fellow man, our fellow citizen, and when they're slaughtered in such number, it's shocking. Most of them would be abated, not eliminated, but the number of dead would go down. Maybe if it weren't an AR-15, if it wasn't an AK-47, if as we're now hearing it wasn't this AR-15 pistol, maybe seven or eight people wouldn't get killed. Maybe two or three people would get killed. And one person killed is, of course, a tragedy, but nine people killed is nine times the tragedy.
And another thing that would happen is the effect, the motivating effect on these unwell young men would be greatly lessened. So if there were attacks where two or three people died and those two or three people got local coverage, it wouldn't have the galvanizing effect of these cretins on 8chan where they try to gamify death and beat the high score. I've done a lot of research into mass slaughters of the top 17 mass slaughters since Columbine. Those with a double-digit death toll, 10 of the 17 use semi-automatic rifles. Of the six mass slaughters since Columbine, with death tolls over 20, five of the six use semi-automatic rifles. There is a strong positive correlation to deadliness when those weapons are used. There is an enormous correlative relationship to the effect on our national psyche when those weapons are used. These weapons absolutely have killed more people than would have been killed were different weapons, deadly weapons, but not as deadly weapons used in their place. And I'm also convinced that a number of these slaughters wouldn't have happened at all without all the mythology and potency that these weapons bring. But you know what? This isn't anything I haven't said before. This isn't anything you haven't heard before. And this isn't anything that our elected officials haven't ignored before. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who have learned over and over again the lesson that the power of conversation and reason is a power akin to the warmth of a dozen nightlights. The gist, to quote a great academic. This has been a lot of fun, but I've, I've, I've got to run. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>